you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. In this bumper episode, we're at the TPM conference in Long Beach held this week. We've got interviews with big cheeses on the sidelines and updates from the biggest fish in the Lodestar reporting pond, who are there in the flesh covering all of this just for you. And as you'll be able to tell, they really have put some hard yards in this week, I promise. And all that's followed by a balletic pivot as we turn our gaze to the global 3PL sector where M&A activity continues unabated. Walking us through all this is the Federal Maritime Commission's Carl Bensel, Mayor's Global Climate Manager for Agricultural Commodities, Adrian Gutierrez. We've got Gordon Downs, co-founder and CEO of Nishex. And who wouldn't want to listen to the dulcet tones of the Lodestar's Mike Wackett and Nick Savides? And just for a last bit of icing on your logistics cake, we'll be hearing from the CEO of Armstrong & Associates. It's Evan Armstrong. In terms of strategic acquirers, it, it is companies like Maersk, it's companies like Kuninago. Everybody who's made significant sums over the last two years, a lot of those companies have built up hundreds of millions of dollars, which they can now use in turn for acquisitions. And we're seeing a lot of interest on the buy side in terms of what companies should they acquire. So which companies will they acquire, Evan? <laughs> well, there's still a lot of privately held companies out there. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Welcome back, one and all. If you didn't know already, this podcast is available on all platforms and on the lodestar.com, where you can also find the world's best supply chain news every day from all around the globe. Later on, as trailed, I'll be joined by Evan Armstrong, CEO of Armstrong & Associates, to examine the latest 3PL global rankings, financials, and M&A activity. But first up, our focus, as it had to be, is on this week's JOC TPM conference held at Long Beach. So uh, we're sort of live, I guess, depending on when you catch this episode. But uh, our colleagues at JOC tell me uh, there's been about 4,000 attendees. They've had 82 sessions, 200 speakers. 50 countries were represented in total. I think we can defensively say this was a, a post-pandemic bounce back for TPM. It's back to normal. Attending for the Lodestar has been news editor Nick Savides and our ocean shipping expert, Mike Wackett, who I'm speaking to ahead of the last day of flat out reporting live from the floor. And I have no doubt there was nothing they wanted to do more today and have a super early start to share some thoughts with us all. Hello, both. Thanks for making it. Yeah. Good morning. Good afternoon. Whatever it is. Yes. Good topic. Oh, a bit of jet lag as well. I hope I haven't had a, a, a late night. I mean, I know you guys both come second to none in your mutual commitment to evening networking, shall we put it? Essential in the Dublin, though. Yeah. Essential networking. I've been teetotal. So, totally. <laughs> oh, well, well, I'm sure I speak for all our listeners when I say we are thankful for your service in making that sacrifice so we don't have to. And I hope you haven't been forced into any of any of LA's finest bars. I'm not jealous at all because I'm back in the UK where it's freezing. You've both been filing stories all week on the lodestar.com, which is obviously what we want to discuss. And Mike, first to you, if we may, in one of your pieces, you made the point uh, very elegantly, I may add, that versus a year ago, it's such a different market out there now. Not only have those vessel queues off San Pedro cleared, 
those $20,000 per 40 foot container spot rate from China to the US West Coast, that, that's a distant memory now. But I think the impression I got at least was the hangover that you're getting from people at TPM is really how aggrieved some shippers are. Yeah, Mike, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're pretty angry. They're pretty angry. They're all coming together here. They're talking to one another, et cetera. But, you know, people are telling me long-standing relationships have been destroyed by two years of greed, basically, is what they're saying. And that's what they're telling us on, on the sidelines, really. So, yeah, the carriers have really got a challenge. They're out here in force this week, the carriers. They're back, you know what I mean? The carriers last year, it's difficult to hunt them down because they didn't need to be anywhere, did they? But this year, they're out. They're going after shippers. They're trying to smooth them. and They're offering contracts of all sorts of magnitude, whining and dining them, et cetera. But it's a tough one because there's a lot of damage done to those relationships. And it, it didn't end in those last two years. Obviously, the carriers are now after some of that cargo as the rates slump and, and they're trying to stem the revenue flow losses. But there's still issues with disruption to those supply chains and services, isn't there? I think you were covering Sea Intelligence CEO Alan Murphy, and he was particularly critical of carriers for uh, implementing last-minute blankings rather than temporary service suspensions. Yeah, ex exactly. Alan was on fire, really, I mean, to be perfectly honest. He was really saying they hadn't blanked enough. And basically, last-minute blankings effectively made a mess of the supply chain without really any notice. So, yeah, he was highly critical of the carriers and, and the way that they tackled the slowing demand. And obviously, as we all know, there's a load of new tonnage coming on the scene. The classic comment from Alan was that the only thing that scares me more than shipping lines without money is shipping lines with money. Great quote. So uh, it seems like carriers are with their last minute strategies and either helping themselves or their customers. Interested. Exactly. Nick, you covered the rarity that is an interview with a senior MSC executive. Did CEO Soren Toft address any of these shipper complaints at all? Not directly. He didn't directly talk about the shipper effects. What he was saying is that, that geopolitics had played a part in what they were doing now. Shippers were looking to diversify their supply chains. And he was saying that they were diversifying risk. So they were going to go to Vietnam, they were going to go to the Philippines, to all these different places and have production centers. Probably, he said five, eight or 10 possible production centers rather than relying on the, the one place. So their complaints are about service, their complaints are, are about managing to get the product to market. They are acting now to rectify that so they won't be in the same position next capacity crunch. So I don't suppose any shippers got a chance to ask questions from the floor by chance, did they? No, neither did I. <laughs> Actually, you know, Peter Tershwolf said, well, what's been the difference between uh, working for Merce for 25 years he didn't come into MSC? And Soren said, well, that was three and a half years ago. And Peter said, well, this is the first time I've been able to ask you. So, yeah, there was that <laughs> sort of thing. And clearly... It was great to see them there, but I mean, he saw and said, well, we're not going to make a habit of it. So I don't think he's going to be back anytime soon. That's a real shame. I did try and stop Bartonhole, um, Soren, and he agreed to do an interview, but the, uh, the court comms got in the way. Well, that doesn't surprise <laughs> me massively. Nick, as we're on uh, geopolitics, you went to another big speech by the now retired US General David Petraeus. He is a regular commentator on Russia's invasion of Ukraine which is uh, obviously very, very sadly been going on for over a year already. What did he say about how geopolitical pressure ratchets up 
that risk in supply chain planning? Well, he said the shift in, in the geopolitical sands mean that modern supply chains need to adapt. So he, he's talking about adaptation in some way similar to what Soren Toff was saying. He said there's going to be seismic changes to the global economy with a shift from globalization to globalization. So it's about growth, but at a much, much slower rate. And these shippers are now going to have to adapt to that new kind of reality. Let's return to that shipper container line relationship, which sounds like it's really dominated at TPM this week. Nick, you grabbed an interview with Gordon Downs, who's co-founder and CEO of NYSHEX. I'm going to play part of that interview now. Just put a bit of context for our listeners. NYSHEX is essentially positioning itself as a, a neutral third party that uses metrics agreed on by shippers and carriers. NYSHEX then enforces those contracts as well as helping companies understand how those contracts are performing. I'm squeezing a lot of information in about what they actually do into a very small amount of time, but that's roughly the gist. And you asked him why, when in the world outside of shipping contracts are binding, why do we see so many contracts broken by both shippers and carriers? And this was Gordon's response. It's a great question. I think this, it's a multifaceted problem. I think that, um, first off, the, the legal framework that governs shipping contracts isn't as simple as basic contract law within a given country. Because, by definition, most global shipping contracts require multiple jurisdictions to be involved. Right. And of course, there are treaties that cover things like bills of lading and the Hague-Visby rules, and, and everyone subscribes to these things. Uh, but as it relates to contracts, there isn't any type of body that addresses this particular point. And so there is a, a general sort of legal coverage question. Um, furthermore, I think that there is a legacy in the contracting mechanisms that we have today, which is a hangover from the old conference era contracts. Right. And in the conference era contracts, really, there were a lot of mechanisms that allowed carriers and shippers um, to be able to break a contract for many different reasons. And, and for example, if you think about a, a, a variable charge, like a, a discretionary peak season charge, mm -hmm. this is essentially a unilateral decision that one party can make to require another party to pay additional capital or additional uh, costs. And when that mechanism is uh, triggered, then of course it, it essentially allows the contract to break because mm -hmm. if the shipper refuses to accept the peak season charge, well then you can't necessarily enforce that type of contract. So I think these are mechanisms that were, I think, widely accepted in the conference era, but now in the post-conference era, these are creating sort of gaping holes in the contract structure or the fabric of contracts in the, the industry. So NYSHEX, in a, in a sense, sits astride jurisdictions by creating a contract which neither side can break. That's the intention. Now, of course, we are focused primarily on making sure that the contract is overall more robust than a traditional contract where it might be rather ambiguous. And a right. traditional contract, for example, is an ambiguous in many different ways. It's ambiguous as to what exactly the price will be because there could be surcharges, etc. It's ambiguous in terms of what exactly the carrier is committing. Yeah. Um, is it a weekly allocation? Is it split evenly across all the different routes or is it for specific routes? Um, what happens in certain edge case scenarios? And these are all things which are, are not explicitly incorporated into the contract. And this is a common practice across globally, across the industry. And so what NYSHIX is doing is, is helping to provide more structure. So the contract itself has far more, um, more information about what exactly both parties are committing to. In addition, the contracts incorporate something called the rulebook. And the rulebook spells out all these edge cases. So right. for example, what happens if a trucker arrives at the terminal more than six hours before the terminal cutoff, 
but there is congestion and the trucker can't get the container back into the terminal, what should happen? And the rule book addresses all of those type of edge cases. Right. So by virtue of the more holistic, robust contract and the supporting rule book, the contracts or the parties are contractually agreeing to a framework which is much more robust. Nick, do you think we'll now see more uptake of these type of services that NYSHEX provides after all those confrontations that we've seen in recent years between shippers and lines? Well, Gordon Downs certainly hopes they will. He thinks that they've got a good chance. For me, it was an interesting conversation because NYSHEX are walking a tightrope, a very narrow tightrope. They are trying to facilitate discussions between the shippers and the shipping lines. But at the same time, they're trying to not to be the policemen. So then, because I did also ask him, well, are you a sister organization to the FMC now? And because if effectively that those links with NYSHEX contracts are binding, but how do you police that? And it's, it's a very, very difficult line. They don't want to be policemen, but they do want to enforce the contracts. It's an interesting conundrum because of course the history has been for shipping contracts in the past is that the dominant partner in now the shippers where the rates are low have always broken the contracts but last year it was the shipping lines and they were breaking their contracts too mike i know you you covered a couple of sessions featuring u.s exporters and we talked earlier about this desperation now the boots sort of on the other foot for lines to find cargo People weren't at all happy how they were treated during the pandemic. And obviously that backhaul cargo is now particularly interesting. But before we hear what the exporters have been saying at TPN, let me bring in my next guest, who is Adrian Gutierrez, Global Client Manager for Agricultural Commodities at AP Moller Maersk. Adrian, welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Thank you for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. How's the show? Is it busy there? How are you finding it? Nice to be back. Absolutely, Mike. It's definitely been, you know, an interesting three years. I'm very happy to be back. We were here last year, but I would have to say this year certainly feels like we're back at it full force. We've had a lot of our customers come out. And I think uh, through the years, I used to manage more in the inbound business. But uh, I think throughout the years, we've started to see more engagement from the exporter community as well. So you're down at TPM looking some backloads, are you? Is that, is that it? And if so, can you tell us a bit about what sorts of cargoes that you're dealing with? or you're looking for and where they go to, where they're sourced? Absolutely. Yeah. So I oversee a large portion within Maersk of the grain commodities and agricultural traders and exporters. So primarily backhaul cargoes moving from the U.S. to Asia, to West Central Asia. And my customer segment focuses on dry distiller grains, also known as DDGs, corn commodities, as well as soybeans and different types of oil seeds and animal feeds as well. In terms of the different sources, primarily Chicago, of course, is a big hub for grain exporters. We also have Ohio Valley, Kansas City. These are some of the larger markets that export, as well as the, the South Atlantic of the U.S. And uh, during the, the COVID years, and, and maybe to a degree still now, a fair number of shippers have been pretty vocal about feeling like they were neglected by carriers. Some would say that people were looking for these big front haul returns that were available and the back haul sort of lost a bit of focus because it wasn't so important to that overall bottom line. And in fact, this is one of the driving forces behind last year's Ocean Shipping Reform Act, which gave the Federal Maritime Commission some more powers in this area. 
What would you say to any skeptical shippers out there at the moment about how you view their business and why it's important to you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, shipping and logistics is cyclical as most industries are. And the last three years were driven by a once in a lifetime black swan event that resulted in an elongated peak for over 24 months. We've never seen that before. And I think that despite the high inbound rates of the spot market, Maersk as a company was not as focused on those spot rates. And rather than that, we were focused on developing long-term relationships with both our import customers as well as our export customers. So these long-term rates were actually lower than the spot rates. And I think we had a, a good amount of success in our strategy while still being able to protect our exporters' business. The backhaul trades have and will continue to be an important part of our business. And we've developed products specifically catered to this customer segment to provide more reliability, to provide more predictability, as well as mitigate their risk during such unprecedented times. So I think to a skeptical shipper, I would say that we're open for business and we are focused on long-term partnerships rather than the short-term quick wins. So uh, if you commit to supporting us, you know, we will do the same. And you mentioned the Black Swan event there. I mean, we had so many of them. We didn't know what to call them in the end in the media. One of the, the things that were up and down the supply chain was problems with empties being in the wrong places, equipment problems everywhere you looked, really. Is all of this resolved now? Now we've got this lower demand picture. Is everything back in place? Yeah. So from an empty equipment standpoint, I think the challenges are no longer being driven by high demand out of Asia and import volumes. But I think we're seeing a new set of challenges now with normalization, a word that I think we're all pretty familiar with in the market. With the slowdown in import cargo, naturally, there's lower volumes coming into specific, uh, specifically inland locations where a lot of these grains originate. So I think we're still seeing some challenges throughout the U.S. I mean, we're not quite at a deficit, I think we're still uh, able to fulfill our contractual obligations and support our exporters, but we are seeing a new set of challenges, I think, with the slowdown in imports. We're doing everything we can. We're repositioning equipment from the coast into these Midwest regions to make sure that we're able to fulfill these contractual obligations, but I don't think we're quite out of the woods yet. So um, it's a work in progress still. And finally, Adrian, what's your sales pitch down there when you're talking to these shippers? What are you pointing out to them about why you can help them? What's going on in the market at the moment? That means that they should turn to you and maybe not ship as bulk some of these cargoes that would often go in bulk carrier, but maybe to use a container. What are you offering when they've seen so many bad headlines or they've had bad experiences over the COVID years? Why would they come back to you? Yeah, so I think from an overall grain market perspective, the U.S. exports a large amount of grains, as we all know, right? And, and less than 10% of that is actually containerized cargo. So 90% of grain exports from the U.S. move in bulk vessels. And I think it's a particularly interesting market product fit. There are buyers uh, overseas that are not looking for 60,000 metric tons of a particular commodity. So in those cases, I think containerized exports are the right product fit for them where they can purchase 10,000 metric tons rather than 60,000 metric tons, 5,000 metric tons. So I think, you know, it's all about economies of scale ultimately. And there are, of course, many factors that impact containerized volumes. As I mentioned, the bulk market, of course, has a lot to do with that. We've seen bulk freight rates really drop since May of 2022. So that makes it a little less competitive to move in containers versus bulk, right? So in many cases, customers that do both have to shift some of that cargo to bulk vessels 
But as I mentioned, there's still a, a pretty strong niche of, of smaller buyers overseas that are looking for smaller loads and smaller quantities. And that's where containers really, uh, really shine and, and where there's a, a strong value proposition. Best of luck with all that. Adrian Gutierrez, thanks uh, for taking time out of your busy schedule at TPM to have a chat to me on the Lowestar podcast. The pleasure's all mine. Thank you for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Mr. Wackett, you sat in on a conversation with the U.S. Dairy Export Council's Krista Harden. What did she have to say on these issues? Basically, uh, started off by giving some background that uh, effectively 20% of the agricultural production is exported. So that effectively means that they rely on this business. But effectively, during the uh, capacity crunch, if you like, and during the high demand, carriers were, uh, although not admitting to that, turning around their empty boxes, sending them back to Asia to get $20,000 rather than lose them in the system for weeks on end for a real small percentage of that revenue. So they had a lot of trouble. What she said was it was painful and costly for our industry. And some of the, these exporters even bought chassis themselves. As you know, over here, that's a quite unique that they have to have a chassis, not just a truck. And they had warehouses full of milk powder waiting to be shipped. Um, but it was a crisis. And that's really why she says that we don't know where we would be without that legislation, that Ocean Shipping Reform Act that came in June of last year that put the onus on carriers to do a lot more for exporters. And uh, Osra 2022, is that doing what it was supposed to for exporters? It, it's empowered the Federal Maritime Commission. Is that right? Well, I mean, she says we don't know where we've been without it, but obviously in the meantime, everything has pivoted. And uh, and now, as as you know, the carriers are out interested in shipping anything at any, at any price. So it becomes quite attractive. But I mean, there was one exporter and he said to me, we found out during this period, we learned where we fit in and our place. Our cargo is no more than a convenient backhaul for the carriers. And at the same time, they put up the rates, he said, by 600%. So yeah, it was a poor situation. But what it has done, actually, um, several of them said, is that it's made them much more aware of the supply chain to stop that happening. And they started to employ logistics professionals within their organization, which they didn't have before because they relied on their partner carriers, which obviously subsequently um, were seen not to be a very reliable partners in some cases. Thanks, Mike. Nick, in, in your work in uh, Frenzy this week, you also managed to grab a word with Carl Bensel, who's one of the commissioners on the Federal Maritime Commission, and he's championing a new maritime transportation data system, which to avoid any confusion is a name change from what was previously called the Maritime Transportation Data Initiative. Let's hear a bit of that interview. You asked him to explain what it is and why it's needed pandemic occurred and it was just clear that the level of communication was insufficient. Not that there wasn't information, it just wasn't being provided in the right way, in the right format, in the right fashion. And so we took a, a comprehensive assessment of uh, what sort of information was out there from all segments of the industry, what information they wanted to receive in order to do their jobs better, were there differences between imports and exports, and the formatting of that data. And so we got a pretty good comprehensive uh, report uh, with recommendations from the industry, all segments of the industry. So shippers, carriers, terminals, dra uh, dredge truck uh, uh, companies, aggregators, the OCCs, freight forwarders, and uh, maritime labor. 
But the effort was to get an assessment from everybody about what sort of information was out there. And it was apparent that there was information, but it wasn't really being provided to the people that needed to have it in a way that was timely or effective. And so uh, based on those uh, comments, those uh, suggestions, the MTDI participants made, sent out a preliminary draft with recommendations for federal standards, federal standards on, on maritime transportation data. And so I will be releasing next week a, a final report with the recommendations calling for the implementation of federal standards on maritime transportation data. And, and what, what do you hope this will solve? What problems would it solve? Well, you know, if you have better information, you can anticipate to a greater extent forecast how to respond to unique challenges, uh, the pandemic itself, or, or just surges of cargo, or, but it will allow for better business planning as well. So shippers can anticipate what sort of services are going to be uh, provided in the future and make better business decisions. A lot of times uh, you're sort of hoping that uh, a cargo ship will be there when you get to the board and we can't be in that position. You know, there's a lot of waste inefficiency. So the cost to our economy and congestion was inflation. That was in the trillions of dollars. So we have to do better uh, in order to, to help address those issues. And I, I guess there's been a lot of discussion around de detention and demurrage, mm -hmm. uh, and that's about the flow of cargo. $2 billion of, uh, of assessments of de detention and demurrage in 2021. And so that's a lot of money. And that, for the most part, most all of those uh, were, were the result of congestion and the costs of delay and, and the, the penalties and, and fees associated with that alone. That's $2 billion. So, okay. uh, so yes, it, detention and demerge is a byproduct of congestion and delay and challenge uh, providing transportation services. And Nick, when the US presumably takes up these recommendations, Carl believes this system will be exportable. That's right, right. He was saying that the report that he's uh, drawn up is coming out next week. He's going to travel to Europe in, in about a month's time to visit Brussels and Rotterdam to discuss how that initiative can be exported and how it can be used uh, more readily. I think one of the interesting things that came out of the discussion that I had with him was that the schedules are often known about three months in advance. So th that data, if it can be made public, could be passed on to shippers and they can use it and then it can be updated quite quickly. So it's got to be in a usable format. It's got to be readily available. And that's the whole point of the, the system to open lines of communication between shipping lines and their customers to improve the flow of cargo, basically. And I know you guys have got to shoot off and get back to another day of hard work, but <laughs> any more snippets of news you can share with us as a closing thought? Yes, the Mike, you could see that sort of wind change with the carriers. I mean, there was conversation with the North American president of CMACGM, Peter Levesque. He admitted a lot of things went wrong. He was quite honest about it, but he was sort of saying, well, look, it's time to rekindle those relationships. And he was saying, being back in front of the customer is the number one priority for us right now. So that this was a real, you know, sea change and really not to look back too much, just draw the line. What was his quote here? Reason why your windshield is bigger than your rear view mirror is you, you have to look forward, basically. So in other words, not to dwell too much on the past. Let's start again. Let's draw the line. Let's try and repair those fractured relationships and get going and learn lessons, really. 
for me, I, I uh, picked up a couple of things from the sidelines, as it were. I was speaking to somebody who works very closely with C-SPAN, who are supposedly selling 35% shares in the company. The other 65% is not up for sale, but that 35% share is apparently going to Ocean Network Express. So that's the rumor from the sidelines. Nick, what's the significance of that? Can you just explain what C-SPAN does for our listeners? C-SPAN is a major ship-owning company. They finance the buying of ships and then charter them out to the carriers. Yeah, not non-operation owners, basically. So So the significance is that they are moving into ship-owning in a big way, even though their principles of one are already major ship-owners, MOL, MYK, and K-Line. The other thing that has been discussed that we haven't discussed on this podcast so far is the labor situation on the West Coast. And that, you wouldn't be surprised to hear, is uh, very high on the agenda. Nothing much has been leaked from the discussions. I did speak to a couple of union officials, and they said that they didn't even know what was going on at the the negotiations. But Gene Soroka, who was the executive director at LA, was very forthright yesterday in a discussion on labor relations, saying that the dockers deserve their pay rise. $400 billion worth of cargo travels through LA and Long Beach. 1.4 billion of that goes to the dockers. It's not a huge amount of money and the increase isn't isn't huge, but he reckons that they deserve it. Interestingly, Bill Mongaluzzo, who is the JOC's West Coast reporter, was saying that the ILWU are carrying out some pretty underhand activities. So they were not striking because that would attract the attention of, of the federal administration. But they were doing things like placing tags on machinery, saying that they needed maintenance so that nobody could use them. Whereas they used to go to lunch in a staggered fashion, they were all going to lunch together. And so all dock work stopped, that kind of uh, action rather than strike action. And there was also something in one of those reports as well, I believe, that saying as uh, the West Coast has lost cargo or its share of US cargo imports, it's also lost jobs. Is that, was it, did I see a figure of 170,000 a year? Was that from Gene Soroka? That's, that's right. And I should just know there, uh, Gene Soroka being the executive director of the Port of Los Angeles. And that, actually, Gene Soroka also pointed out that the uh, shift from the West Coast to the East Coast and Southern Coast has been going on for 20 years. So he says that trend is not new, but that shift is, he's saying even now, the LA Long Beach facilities are twice as big as any other port in the US. I did speak to Seco yesterday and they reckon that they're seeing a lot of cargo coming back to the West Coast. They said that not all of it will come back, but a lot of it has to come back because all the infrastructure is centered around the West Coast. And so it will come back. That was their view. Presumably that was Brian Bork at Seco Logistics, who's a a regular and very welcome guest on this Lodestar podcast. That is exactly right, Mr. King. Thank you, guys. Next up is Evan Armstrong, CEO of Armstrong & Associates, and we'll be turning our attention to the global uh, 3PL market. But thanks again, Nick Savides, Mike Wackett, live from TPM, and uh, surprisingly chirpy and patient given uh, the early start, for which I'm most grateful. Thank you both for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Early start, three hours sleep. You know, there we are. We're troopers. We're troopers for the Lodestar. The things you do, the things well, you do. I, I'm, I'm sure you're off to bed now, so have a good sleep, Mike. <laughs> <laughs>
I would now like to welcome someone who I've been looking forward to interviewing for some time. His company produces some of the best analysis and reports on the logistics and 3PL sectors that is available anywhere. And he's here to talk to us about some of the latest findings. Evan Armstrong, CEO of Armstrong & Associates, welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Thank you, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. Evan, we've talked on previous podcasts about the massive increase in revenues and profits container lines and freighter operators recorded over 2021 and 2022. We've covered the benefits to 3PLs during this COVID era a lot less. Can you give us some numbers or perspective so we can understand better how those guys did out of all of that supply chain disruption and those changes in consumer demand? Well, when we look at the supply chain disruptions and what happened on the logistics provider side, both with ocean shippers, um, just pure transportation providers and third-party logistics providers, anytime the complexity goes up, shippers rely on logistics providers to really come through for them. And that's what we saw. We saw all kinds of disruptions, but at the end of the day, a lot of companies performed well and, you know, frankly, were benefited from that performance. So in terms of logistics providers, third-party logistics providers were direct beneficiaries, I guess, of inflation because prices did go up, demand was still strong coming out of the pandemic and then especially over the last two years for third-party logistics provider services, ocean transporters, domestic transportation companies. So what we saw in terms of logistics costs, we saw logistics costs go from about $9.7 trillion in 2019 to about $11.7 trillion in 2022, and we saw the 3PL revenues go from essentially uh, 968 billion globally in 2019 to 1.6 trillion in 2022. So it was very significant increases. I mean, year over year from 20 to 21, third party logistics grew at almost 32%. And then in 22, it grew about 14.5%. The last two years have been very good. A lot of companies have a lot of money and the operations are starting to normalize again. Those huge expansion in those numbers there, Evan, was a lot of that from international trade that benefited so much during that period. I'm talking air, ocean freight, forwarding, customs, brokerage, all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where we saw the greatest increases and as much as like 75% year over year, depending on the country or region you're talking about, was in the international transportation management 3PL segment. So exactly what you're talking about, air erosion, freight forwarding, and then all the compliance activities that go with it. And then the inland portion of those moves as well. Yes. So we've seen a lot of growth on the freight forwarding side. And of course, now um, things are normalizing. Supply chains are pretty much getting back to normal and the rate to come down to like the things like the Shanghai shipping index and some other measures, the ocean rates are getting back to normal. Now they're, they're going to land at a higher rate, of course, than they were in 2019. But 
things are getting back to normal and we expect that's why our latest global paper is dubbed downshift. We're really expecting this year, next year in 2025 to be um, somewhat muted when it comes to air and ocean freight forwarding, some of the domestic trans and as we get back to normal here. I want to come back to that down cycle in a moment, Evan, but you guys, Armstrongs and Associates, you're famed for your global rankings of uh, the biggest 3PLs forwarders. Well, certainly in my world you are, because I've been quoting those rankings for many, many years. Did we see any major movements over 21, 22 that really caught your eye? I think we've had companies like Kuninagel buying Apex International, which really boosted its air freight business in terms of air freight forwarding. Now it's the largest ocean and air freight forwarder. So that was a big deal. We've seen quite a bit of growth just from domestic transportation are in our top 3PL list. And we expect increased business overall. Now, in terms of shifts, I mean, in terms of the top 50 global third-party logistics providers, we still have Kuninagel, DHL, DSV, and DB Schenker. I guess the big shift, of course, is the one I mentioned, where Kuninagel is now the largest. And we're still finalizing the 2022 revenues, but on a 2021 gross revenue turnover basis, about 41 billion of third-party logistics revenues, which puts it above DHL supply chain global forwarding at about 38 billion. So it's still very large companies. Beyond that, there's a movement. You have companies like Maersk. Maersk has also been on quite a acquisition trail over the past couple of years buying companies, visible supply chain and LF's, Lian Fung's LF logistics operations, using some of that war chest they built up over the last two years to make some significant acquisitions to expand e-commerce, expand warehousing capabilities. So I think growth amongst Maersk and beyond that, the top 50 doesn't look much different. It's just, we've seen some movement within the top 50 and a lot of those companies are eyeing acquisitions this year. So last year we had about 15 acquisitions of over a hundred million dollars in purchase price. The year before we had 25. So last year was still, still pretty acquisitive. The year before a good year. And we expect now, given that what's going on with interest rates, we expect the private equity guys to kind of be sitting out this year, investment banks to slow down. And this is going to be the year of strategic acquisition. We do buy side M&A work. And I can tell you, I've probably been contacted by about eight companies this month who are interested in making acquisitions this year. I think the buy side activity is, is going to be pretty good here this year. And then with what the valuations are from the last two years, I think uh, there's going to be quite a few companies looking to sell, but it's, it's all going to be strategic buyers looking to expand their networks, looking to expand their capabilities. Can I just rewind slightly there, Evan? When you talked before about the size of the domestic market for our global audience, are you referring to the North American market or the U.S. market? Can you just clarify there? Uh, that would be the domestic U.S. market, yeah. Domestic U.S. market. And... The M&A activity there, you talked about strategic buyers. 
What does that mean exactly? Is this the cash rich now at the end of these boom years? Are they like you mentioned Maersk, for example? Is, is this people taking advantage of those lower stock valuations? Or can you just clarify that a little bit more? Yes. Yeah, so in terms of strategic acquirers, it, it is companies like Maersk. It's companies like Kuninagel. Everybody who's made significant sums over the last two years, a lot of those companies have built up hundreds of millions of dollars, which they can now use in turn for acquisitions. And we're seeing a lot of interest in on the buy side in terms of what companies should they acquire. So which companies will they acquire, Evan? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's still a lot of privately held companies out there. In the U.S., one came off the table, which was Tenco Logistics, which was a top 10 warehousing company and that had received a major investment from Pritzker Capital last year. But I think most of it this year is going to be a mix of things. We're seeing a lot of interest on domestic transportation. We're seeing interest in small to mid-sized freight forwarders in Europe. U.S. companies interested in expanding into Europe by looking at small, mid-sized freight forwarders. We've actually developed an extensive list of small and mid-sized companies that we're using to facilitate those types of transactions. And on the warehousing side, you know, warehousing, we really don't see declining too much this year in really any, any region. Inventories are still pretty high. Storage will be there. Might be less handling costs, but I think it's going to be a good year to look at warehousing companies as well, depending on where you're based. If you're based in the U.S., maybe expanding into Europe, furthering Asia expansion, or if you're in Europe and don't have U.S. operations, I think this is a pretty good year to look at warehousing companies. They're going to be less volatile than things like freight forwarding or freight brokerage. So there's a lot of possibilities out there in terms of how to grow strategically. And it's really what you need as a business. And has that warehouse market, has that changed at all? We've talked on this podcast about the shift from the West Coast to the East Coast ports, but actually some of that was tied to union disruption or potential union disruption and other things. But there has been a more long-term sort of economic shift. Is that playing out in the warehouse markets as well? That's at all as far as you've noticed. Well, I mean, we have areas in the United States like Savannah that has grown pretty significantly and is definitely a port of interest in terms of import activity. It seems like I think some of it's going to shift because just things are normalizing now. Long Beach, LA is more, you know, more normal. You don't have all the, way, the waiting times to get unloaded. So I think it will balance out. It really depends on where are your imports coming from? Where are your trade lanes? And, you know, what makes sense from a port standpoint? But Savannah's there. Savannah's uh, got a pretty efficient operation. There's a lot of warehousing around the port now that you can utilize, and it's one of the better ones. The real difficulty we see is on the cold chain. seems like cold chain capacity is very tight in a lot of different regions, and it's exp more expensive to operate, and uh, it seems like there's fewer and fewer companies in that space all the time because a lot of them are being acquired. Interesting, Evan. And I also just want to take you back a moment because you did mention that you were helping people who might be interested in buying small and medium-sized assets in Europe. So American buyers, we're not talking about an SME company here though, but there's a lot of talk about DB Schenker. Have you got any thoughts there? Who's going to buy that? DB Schenker? Yeah. 
That's a good question. I, my thought on D.B. Shanker is that it's a very big fish. And given the current interest rate situation with interest rates increasing and more of the investment bank and private equity investors being on the sidelines, I don't see much happening with D.B. Shanker frankly, and I don't know what the railroad would be looking for or what, you know, what they would be looking for in terms of valuation from that type of acquisition. So I think it's going to be more focused on small, mid-sized freight borders. So U.S. companies looking to expand into Europe and further into the developing parts of Asia and European companies, say on the contract logistics side, warehousing side, who don't have a footprint in North America yet looking to expand into the U.S. I think that's where most of the activity will be. So just on that final point there, so what sort of European companies might be looking at that U.S. market, would you say? And is uh, Expeditors available? It's been having a bit of a tough time. So in terms of what type of companies, I think there are companies within Europe that have large operations in Europe, but still fairly small operations in the U.S., or you have companies based in Asia that have smaller operations based in the U.S. that, you know, to really play in North the North American market probably need more scale and size. So we'll see those companies having have interest. And then on the U.S. side, definitely Still a lot of companies looking to buy other U.S. companies, but then on the freight forwarding side, trying to get a foothold into the European market. You know, what's nice is we recently added staff. We have a person in Luxembourg now, and we'll be trying to work some of those transactions. And Expeditus, <laughs> is that, do you think, do you see that as a potential target? Ah, they're just so big in the valuations. Yeah, I mean, it's always a potential target. It's just so big and the valuation's so high, it would almost have to take something like Dubai Ports or somebody who has a lot of sovereign wealth to acquire it. And uh, it could happen. Not quite sure. There was also this rumor about DSV buying C.H. Robinson's freight forwarding operations. But I just think given the past two years, for some of these deals, it's going to be so hard to come up with a valuation that makes sense that I just, it's going to be more of a challenge when you talk about companies of that size and scale to really come up with an agreeable evaluation for the seller and the buyer. A lot of the sellers are going to want too much and more than the buyer will be willing to pay. Evan, when you look at the 3PL market more generally, globally, the size of those freight rate pies, essentially, or that logistics spend is declining. Do you see any companies being placed to maybe avoid lower earnings or lower profits? I'm going to say e-commerce, but very doubtfully, big and bulky, perhaps. Will any companies or any niches book that growth trend as we hit this down cycle? Yeah, I think I mentioned warehousing earlier. I think warehousing is more of a safe haven right now, and it's going to be less influenced by the drop in transportation rates that we're seeing. So on the warehousing side, and then of course, the fastest growing piece of that warehousing equation is um, e-commerce, e-commerce fulfillment, and then the final mile portion, still double digit growth in those areas. And then especially when you start talking about 
like big and bulky last mile. There's some interesting plays in that area. So I think warehousing is more of a safe haven. I think we'll see a lot more interest in warehousing this year and next year versus international transportation management and domestic transportation management overall. And warehouses are still full. If demand goes down, they'll still be full. <laughs> there would just be less handling charges. Now, through this COVID era, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's uh, either listening or on this podcast who bought loads of stuff they didn't need. And I sent an awful lot of it back, including a, a jacuzzi that broke after two weeks of use. It was like a, a very cheap rental. So I wanted to ask you, that was my way of getting to reverse logistics. Because I think you or someone else, someone's definitely called it a trillion dollar market for 3PLs if they can possibly provide the service levels needed. Can you explain it for us, please? I mean, reverse logistics has always been a, it's two things. It's very hard to deal with. A lot of third-party logistics providers will do it as part of their warehousing operations, uh, but returns processing, getting items triaged and back into sellable inventory requires a lot of process control and good process management. And not every third-party logistics provider is an expert at it. So you have some that are better than others. I mean, FedEx Logistics acquired a company called Genco, which was a leader in reverse logistics, and they have very good processes in place. We've seen a lot with companies like Siva, some of the guys on the high-tech side, which can run a very good reverse logistics operation. Some companies like Wright or Penske are pretty good at it. So it's an area that is growing. It's going to grow just like spare parts logistics as well, spare service parts. When we get these downturns, people still have to service their cars. They still have to service industrial equipment, et cetera. And on the reverse side, people are still going to return things. And it's much more of a challenge with apparel and some of those types of commodities when you talk about e-commerce. And then especially if you get into international returns, so it's like if things are sourced in China and then you're sitting in Europe or the U.S. and you make a return, what do you do with those products? Do you salvage them? Do you try to return them to, to the manufacturer? Right. A lot of issues around that. But yeah, reverse through e-commerce, it's a growing issue. There's a growing opportunity, frankly, for third-party logistics providers. It's just having the capabilities to manage it successfully. In terms of those capabilities, what do companies need to offer shippers to get this right? Or maybe another way of putting it is what are they getting wrong at the moment? Yeah, I think it's just really about being able to control the return. A lot of times the best returns processes, you'll have a call center in the third-party logistics operation that can arrange for authorization and returns of say, higher value non-e-commerce products. On the e-commerce side, it's, it's going to happen through some type of shopping cart website. And then just being able to marry up the returns to a return material authorization or some type of documentation upon receipt in the warehouse, and you want that process to be automated, then you want to have a, a triage process where you go through the returns and apply a deposition to those so you know which ones can go back in sellable inventory, which ones have to be salvaged, or which ones has to be refurbished. 
there's a lot of specialization there and it's not a natural for a lot of companies, but if you're in high tech, if you're in retail on the apparel side, you'll have a start in terms of, you know, some thoughts around how to build that process. And the way third-party logistics is, there tends to be some wandering between companies of people that have knowledge of how to process returns and handle reverse logistics. If you can handle it in a domestic operation, that's much easier. Doing the inter international returns, of course, is more complex because there is that freight forwarding component in addition to the domestic trans and warehousing component. Evan, I don't know if you're a, a gambling man, but if you are looking at this reverse logistics market, can you give me the names of maybe three companies you think have got a real opportunity and you think will probably succeed if they enter this market? Where would you put your money? Who would those winners be? Well, I've seen reverse operations at like DHL, DSV, SEVA, FedEx Logistics, Geodis. And I think where they have those operations, they've been fairly specialized around different vertical industries and had some very good capabilities. So I think within those ones, it's very good. And then I think on the uh, Asian side, you know, I've been in pretty fairly automated operations at CJ Logistics, Carry Logistics, so that they have some pretty good capabilities as well. You like to spread your bets, uh, <laughs> Evan Hall. I've seen a lot of good operations. I've seen a lot of bad operations. <laughs> I've also seen a lot of good operations. I went horse racing with somebody who bet on every <laughs> single horse the other week just because they'd lost all the previous races. Anything to be a winner. Evan Armstrong, CEO of Armstrong & Associates, thank you for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you very much, Mike. It's my pleasure. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenitor, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.